Justin. Jesus, the one who brings light to the darkness, the one who sets the captives free, the one who gives life where there is death. If you look at John chapter 2, verses 23 to the beginning of chapter 3, this is one of the most famous passages of Scripture. We're going to be spending two weeks leading into it this week and next week. And so follow along with me. The last couple weeks, uh, we have been seeing John reveal different aspects of the character of Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. This week, we see another aspect of Jesus' character, but also a very stark realization about who we are as well. This is what John writes, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would blow your Spirit, that your Spirit would blow in our midst and into our hearts to teach us from your Word, to illuminate your Scriptures. We might know you, that we might be renewed in you and have life through you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's one of the frustrations of life you know, that you go to the mechanic, you think you just need to get your brake pads changed, and then they tell you that your entire brake system needs to be replaced. Or you go to the doctor and you just want to get your blood work checked up, and they go on to tell you that your cholesterol is too high, your triglycerides are too high, your H1C is too high, and your blood sugar, your blood sugar is too high. We come to this passage of Scripture here, and Nicodemus approaches Jesus like all of us do. He approaches Jesus with what he thinks he needs, and he quickly discovers he's not even asking the right questions. Look at what happens here in this passage. Nicodemus comes, to, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We get introduced to him here in verse 1. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let's understand who he is so we can understand the significance of what he is asking. It says that he is a Pharisee. What's a Pharisee? A Pharisee was one who, it was a religious position, but more practically, he was a person who appeared like he had it all together. He was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. He was one who led a superior life. It looked like everything would go right in his life. If, if Nicodemus were a soccer mom, he would be the type that like his 
never, his kids never like missed a, they were never missing a sock. Um, when it was their turn for snack time, they had snacks that were nutritious and delicious that all of the kids loved. And they sang songs both to the soccer game and from the soccer game and sang songs to church and from church. That was what a, a Pharisee would be like. It would be a bit like that if a Pharisee would be kind of like your model citizen. These are the type of people you wanted to have as your neighbor. Their lawns were impeccably mowed. There were no weeds. Their kids weren't blowing dandelions in, their, in, in the neighbor's yards. Um, they were the type of person when you looked at them and you looked at their family and they would wheel their trash out to the street, you had this curiosity that if you opened the trash can and peered inside, that there would be nothing in it. And Nicodemus was like this in a religious sense. He was a model of faith. He was a model of someone who studied Scripture, and he lived it as consistently as possible in his life. The text tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews, also that he was a teacher of the law. You take all these different positions that Nicodemus has, and the way that we can understand that is that if Nicodemus were speaking at an event, he would be induced, introduced by saying, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you the right reverend, doctor, professor, rabbi, senator, Nicodemus. Let's welcome him into our midst. And to varying degrees, all of those titles would be appropriate. So here is Nicodemus, a man who was successful, a man who is of stature, a man who appears to be upright in character. And what he saw was that he was part of the group of people who saw the signs that Jesus was doing. In fact, he admits that in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says, no one can do these signs. What were these signs that Jesus was doing? Well, they weren't magic tricks that he was doing. They weren't sleight of hands. They were miracles, miraculous signs, sick people being instantly healed, lame people walking, blind people seeing, miracles. And Nicodemus saw them with his own eyes, and he was certainly attested to by other people. Now, for someone in Nicodemus' stature as a rabbi and professor and doctor and senator, he certainly should have recognized something bigger was going on. You see, in biblical history, there's only a few periods of time when miracles are occurring. One of those times was when Noah and the flood came through. Another period was when Moses delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, and there were the signs done to Pharaoh, and then ultimately the parting of the Red Sea and manna in the wilderness, and a variety of the other signs that um, Moses did. And then you don't really, there's little aspects, you get stories of God's deliverance and God's delivering in remarkable ways, but you don't have a miracle worker again until you get to the prophets, namely Elisha and Elijah. And then you see them calling down fire from heaven against the prophets of Baal. You see them raising people from the dead and healing people who are sick. And then you don't see it again until Jesus shows up on the scene. So it has been 800 years, the time of Elijah and Elisha around them. It has been 800 years since you have had a miracle worker in this degree. Certainly the teachers of the scripture knew that the Messiah would come and when he comes, he would come with signs, that the day of the great prophet would come, and when he comes, he would come with these miraculous signs. But notice how Nicodemus approaches Jesus. 
He says to Jesus, Rabbi. Rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Now, on the one hand, this is a considerable act for Nicodemus, who is a respected teacher of the law, to be showing respect and honor to Jesus, who did not go through their certification process. This would be like a medical doctor saying to someone who has had no medical, formal medical training and no certification, saying, doctor. He's bestowing an honor upon him and showing respect and dignifying him in this way. But I want us to look here that when Jesus, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus and says, Rabbi, we need to understand that the way that you understand a problem often determines the answer. The way you understand a problem often determines the answer. So consider this in the, in the economic and political realm. Why is there poverty in our country? Well, our political parties have different assessments of the problem and different answers. For some, some say the reason why there is economic poverty is because people lack opportunity. And if people just had opportunity, then there wouldn't be any more poverty. So what you need to do is you need to give people opportunities. For others, they would say what people lack is that they lack education. Therefore, what people need is they need more education and the ability to get education. Some people lack love, and so therefore they need love. For other people, they say, you know what, the reason why there's economic poverty is because people haven't had to deal with the consequences of their actions, and they need accountability. They need to experience the consequences of their actions. Sometimes Christians jump in and say, the reason why people were economically impoverished is because they don't believe in Jesus. So we just need to go tell them about Jesus, right? The way that you ask the problem and understand the problem determines your answer. And the way that you understand yourself and your own struggles and challenges determines your approach to Jesus. For Nicodemus, after studying the Word of God, after seeing these miraculous signs, he says, you know what? I'm going to go meet this guy. And he goes up to him and he says, teacher, teacher, I need a little bit more information. Problem is ignorance. The solution is more information, a little bit more teaching. Our late modern society in which we live and in which we imbibe has unbounded confidence in learning and in reason, has unbounded confidence and belief particularly in the ability of science and technology to bring us a better future. And so, you know, you hear that the epicenter of this is Silicon Valley or certain medical centers where there are various prophetic voices, such as the CEOs of Google and Facebook and Apple and IBM and Microsoft, or various people in prominent medical positions. And they promise, they say there is a, there is a future coming A future where the problems of aging will be eradicated. The problems of disease, disease will be solved. Cancer will be solved. Heart disease will be solved. The problem of animal extinction and the mass extinction of animals of the current age, that will be solved because we will bring back to life animals that have been extinct. The problems of poverty and inequality, all of these things are going to be solved and all of these things are going to be transformed. This is this deep-seated belief in our society today. You know, 50 years ago, the belief was there's certainly a strong belief in technology and science, but there was also a really strong belief in political solutions. 
that what we needed to do is we needed to get a right political solution, and that would bring peace on earth. If we could just get democracies across the globe, if we could just battle against communism, if we could get democracies, that would create a peaceful society. That hope for the government to be the answer has waned in our day from where it was some years ago. And as it has waned, the confidence in technology has grown. I mean, do people, does anybody really think that there is an unsolvable problem? That given enough time, enough energy, enough resources, is there a problem that can't be solved? I mean, and particularly with the development of artificial intelligence and the way that it can do the work of 10,000 humans in a, in, a, in, a, in a second. I mean, it's going to solve our problems of, of weather and natural disasters that are coming through. Cancer will be solved. Terrorism is going to be solved predicting and dealing with depression, all of these things are going to be solved through artificial intelligence that goes, comes down. And late modern Christians have embraced a version of this. And the way that it gets worked out in the Christian life and the Christian faith is people say things like this, hey, I, I, I love Jesus. You know, I mean, yeah, I, in my look at my life, I, I've messed up a lot. There's a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. I've done wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am not as bad as the other person down, you know, that does really awful things. But, I mean, I love Jesus, and I've messed up a lot. And, and Jesus has done a lot for me. And, and Jesus has blessed me in so many, Jesus has blessed me in so many ways. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I need a little help. I, I need a little help. I, I need to grow. And to that view... In the view of Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't even bother to engage. Surely this must have been shocking for Nicodemus, a man with his knowledge, with his gifts, his understanding, his position. I mean, he comes with a thought on what he thinks he needs, and he finds out that it's totally wrong. And it is no less shocking for Nicodemus than it is for us. We're saying, yeah, I, I, I need a little bit, little bit of help. And it's almost as if Jesus interrupts Nicodemus. And when he interrupts him, he says to Nicodemus, what you need is you need life. You don't need more information. You don't need more teaching. You need life. Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is missing from your life? It is actually life that is missing. And the text develops this in a couple different ways. Beginning in verse 23 and 24, when Jesus, other people start believing in Jesus because of the signs that he is doing. And it says this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust them, himself to them. So people are believing in Jesus and he says he doesn't entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Why does Jesus not entrust them? Why does he not entrust himself to other people? Because he knows what's on the inside. He knows what's in other people. And Scripture makes it clear. Surely Jesus knew these Scriptures as well. Starting back from the book of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What does that say about us? It's not saying that people never do anything that's good, but it's saying that if they do it, they do it for 
their own reason, for their own gain, because they're convinced of some level of, this is what ought to be done because I think this is what ought to be done. They don't do it with the right motives. And then Jeremiah takes it and says, what's inside a man? What's inside a person? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's inside? The problem with the deception of the heart is that our heart deceives us, and in its deception of us, we convince ourselves in our deception that we're not deceived, which means we're really deceived. It wasn't just these two guys. Solomon and Ecclesiastes says, also the hearts, just very, just to the point, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. People live, they're evil, and then they die. (laughs) David, recognizing his own condition, cries out to the Lord, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did did my mother conceive me. David is saying, listen, all of who I am, there's no part of me that's not corrupted by sin. And Isaiah makes it, I'm sorry, Ephesians, Paul makes it particularly clear in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, now you were dead in the trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. What does a dead person need? A little bit of teaching? A little bit more information? No, what a dead person needs is a dead person needs life. Now you may be at this point and you're thinking, gosh, well, this is quite depressing. <laughs> I wasn't coming here expecting that. To, I wasn't coming here expecting that, that today. But it's only depressing for those of you who actually think that you can create life yourself. It's only depressing for those of you who think that you actually that you have the ability to make yourself right with God, because this truth. This truth about our, our, our corruption and our brokenness and our, and our depravity, this truth that it covers our whole life is actually incredibly good news. In fact, it's probably the best news that you have heard this entire week. And I'm not joking. Here's why. Recently, there was an uh, opinion piece written in the New York Times, written by a philosophy professor, this philosophy professor to... Uh, as best as I can tell, is not a Christian. They certainly don't hesitate to critique Christianity and condemn Christianity and try to do something other than Christianity. And she wrote, a, this, this philosophy professor, he wrote an article entitled, What's So Good About Original Sin? And he's saying, this is why a secular person who is somewhat opposed to Christianity actually thinks that everything that the Bible just said is really good news. This is what the person writes, and I'm going to read, uh, it's a sizable piece of this that I'm going to read. The biblical teaching about sin and our condition has often been held to be intolerably dark, a counsel of despair. It says we are by nature morally flawed, and that we are both in error, and that we live in it irremediably. It has led some people to make extraordinarily disturbing claims. goes on to say, it's hard to argue with the fact that inherent depravity is a profoundly pessimistic idea (laughs) and one with potentially bad effects. A rejection of the idea of original sin might argue that if we believe that we can be good and do good by our own efforts, we are likely to strive to do so. 
If we believe we are intrinsically evil, it follows, we will cease trying to make ourselves or the world better. Why not then think more positively about ourselves and believe in the possibility of human goodness and our potential for improvement right here in this world? He goes on and he makes his point. He says, I would like to entertain the notion that a secularized conception of original sin is plausible and that believing in it might have good effects. He goes on to say, when I look within, and here's why, when I look within, I see certain extreme failings. I have not been able to get rid of most of them, and I have accumulated others as I have gone along. Perhaps you've done better. But most of us certainly come up short of our ideals. Ones, I hope most people, whether religious or not, generally share. Ideals such as to be generous, peaceful, energetic in helping others. Help to be hesitant to help ourselves at their expense. To take care of the world that we inhabit. To not only not kill one another, or even think about it, but to love one another. Even by our own moral standards, we are profoundly flawed, he goes on to say. To complicate matters further, action undertaken for apparently good motives can often yield unintended harmful consequences outweighing any possible good effects. We can intend, at best, only a tiny proportion of the effects of any of our actions. And trying to make the world an excellent place for human beings to live by developing and applying ingenious technologies, for example, we may wind up rendering it uninhabitable. Or in trying to keep ourselves safe and secure by stockpiling defensive weaponry, weaponry, we may annihilate life on earth. Even the sheer fact that we are finite in our knowledge and in our power leads us to make terrible moral mistakes. But many of us commit those sort of transgressions knowingly because we have malicious or violent impulses and motivations. We may even justify or defend them. He goes on to say, there is some level of self-scrutiny too merciless for most of us. Some inner corridor too dark that we don't want to expose. We are mystified or purport to be by mass shooters, for example. What could possibly motivate motivate a person to kill and want to kill everyone? What could turn them so against their own species? Listen to his, his assessment. I suggest that to answer a question like that, we must look within ourselves at our own violent fantasies, the ways we hate or negate the world, our moments of imagined annihilation of people that we fancy to be our enemies, our feeling at times that we are being arbitrarily persecuted or misunderstood. Perhaps, if we were witheringly honest, we might see a school shooter within us, or a bully, or abuser of the sort that helped create people like that. And then the philosopher goes on to say, this isn't a uniquely Christian concept. This insight is not exclusive, the exclusive province of Christian theology. Ralph Waldo Emerson not a Christian, once wrote, I have within me the capacity for every crime. Now, most people thought that he was, that Emerson at the time was being just making a point. But the American feminist, Voltairine de Clare, amplified this sentiment. She wrote, 
that she believed that he truly meant those words. That he was, and she goes on to say this, I think he meant exactly what he said. I think with all his purity, Emerson had within him the turbid stream of passion and desire. For all his hard-cut granite features, he knew the instincts of the weakling and the slave. And for all his sweetness, he had the tiger and the jackal in his soul. I think that within every bit of human flesh and spirit that has ever crossed the Enigma Bridge of life, from the prehistoric racial mourning until now, all crime and virtue were germinal. The seeds of it are within us all. goes on to say, We may regard a shooter or a racist or a sexual predator, predator, an addict or someone who commits suicide, as Declare herself tried to do at once. We may regard them as alien, meaning that they're foreign. That, that's not like us. That's not who we are. We're not that type of people. That's someone else. That's a different species. That's someone else who's got something else wrong with them. This reinforces to ourselves and others our sense of our own sanity and goodness. It is a way to keep us safe, not only from those who would commit such crimes, but from the parts of ourselves who are like them or who could have gone down that road. And then he turns in and says, this is why this is good news. But what if we put aside the defenses? What are the defenses? The defenses that want to acknowledge that there's a part of us like that. What if by connecting with the criminal, with the deranged or patently evil, we gain some deeper understanding? He goes on to say, the doctrine of original sin in religious and or secular versions is an expression of humility, an expression of a resolution to face our, in, to, to face our own imperfections. But of course, in such an undertaking, there is risk. Do you hear why this is such good news? It's good news. Why this is such good news? Because it means that you know, you intuitively know about yourself that there is something that's not right. You intuitively know that there are dark corridors in your mind and in your soul that you wish that you, that you hope you never go down, that you hope are never exposed, but you know that they're there. You intuitively know that you have failed to live up to your own standards, whether Christian or otherwise or not. You know that there is something wrong with you that you cannot fix. Let me say that, that you cannot fix. And so now, why this is such good news? Because it means that you can stop pretending that you can fix it. It means that you can stop hiding. It means that you can stop trying to, say, trying to be someone that says, you know what, I've got the answers within myself to do this, because you know you don't have the answers within yourself to do this. And what the good news of Scripture is that not only is it, not only is it true that you cannot fix yourself, but you don't have to. You don't have to live your life trying to make yourself right with God. You can't and you don't have to because Jesus Christ has come because there is one who brings new life. So when Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hallelujah! I mean, isn't that good news that you have to be born again? Isn't it good news 
That you don't have to do something and coerce yourself and work yourself in some possible way to get to some point where then you're acceptable to enter the kingdom of God? It says you can't do it, and you don't have to. Has it come by being born again? Now, that raises a question. Because Nicodemus looks at this and he says, wait a second. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, and, then, and then can he be born? Nicodemus is saying, how on earth is this possible? To put it slightly different, Nicodemus could be understood as saying, wait a second. What can I, bring to, what can I do to bring this about? What can I do to bring this about? And the answer is nothing. Isn't that great? That you don't have, there is nothing you can do to bring this about. There is nothing that you have missed to bring this about. You don't have to live trying to bring about this new birth and live trying to, trying to get into the kingdom of God. Why? Because God gives it to you. He gives you new life. What did you contribute to your birth? Nothing. Nothing. And that's Jesus' point to Nicodemus. And so we need life, and Jesus himself comes, and he brings life to us. He describes it further in verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered him. He sees Nicodemus is surprised by this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel at this, I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is what Jesus is emphasizing, is that life comes through the Spirit of God. Verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus uses a parallel construction. These two verses are saying the exact same thing. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit is a reference to... Um, the prophets, particularly Ezekiel chapter 36, foretold that the spiritual birth would come and would be characterized by a birth of water and the Spirit. And then Jesus gives Nicodemus a picture of how this works. He can tell that Nicodemus isn't getting this. So he goes to Nicodemus, I'm going to give you a lesson in biology 101. Fle that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Here's the biology lesson. Pigs beget piglets, and ducks beget ducklings. Flesh, what is born of the flesh, begets flesh, and the Spirit of God begets the Spirit of God in another person. Of course. How could it be any other way? That's the way it has to work. That's biology 101. And so Nicodemus, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Pigs beget piglets. The Spirit of God begets the Spirit of God. This isn't complicated, Nicodemus. He says, don't be surprised by this. And then he gives another image. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Saying, Nicodemus, don't be surprised. The tree that experiences the wind does not cause the wind to blow. Right? 
The tree that experiences the wind is not the one who is causing the wind to to blow. And those who are dead cannot cause the life of the Spirit to enter into them. Those who are dead cannot cause the wind to blow. All they can do is receive it. All they can do is receive the life of the Spirit that gives to them, and they contribute nothing to it. Hallelujah. And so the way that this cycle, this works, is those in whom the Spirit of God works have a profound realization of their deadness. They have a profound realization of the deceitfulness of their own heart and that their thoughts are corrupted and that their motives are mixed all the time. They have this profound recognition that I'm dead and because I'm dead, I'm hopeless and I can't do anything to bring this about. I can't, a dead person can't cause themselves to come back to life. But those in whom the Spirit of God works realize their deadness, and because the Spirit of God is working in their life, they cry out to the Spirit of God to work in their life. And when they cry out for the Spirit of God to work in their life, the Holy Spirit gives those who are dead, He gives them life. And when those who are dead receive life, they then in turn seek the Spirit and seek to walk by the Spirit. And those who are then walking by the Spirit and seeking the Spirit in their life are then continually renewed by the Spirit as they live in the Spirit and as they experience the life of the Spirit. No matter where you are in this cycle, I mean, maybe you're you're here today and you're at the very beginning of this spot, that maybe today, for the first time, that you realize that what Scripture says about you is true, and maybe you realize it because you heard Scripture, or maybe you realize it because you heard the New York Times, and because the New York Times is saying the same thing that Scripture is saying in many senses. Or maybe you realize it because you had this profound realization that you can't give yourself life. You had this profound realization that, you know, I, I don't need a little bit of help. I need life to come into my deadness. And so maybe you're at the beginning of this cycle. Or maybe you're one in whom the Spirit has brought renewal. But wherever you are, I think the process is the same, is that where we are, wherever you are in that cycle, our response and what we are to do is to cry out again and again for the Spirit of God to work within us to give us life and to give us new life, and that the new life that he has given us would become increasingly present in this life, and that we would consistently walk with the Spirit and walk by the Spirit in all that we do. And so wherever you are on on the cycle, that you cry out and you cry out again, as David did in Psalm 51, after confessing that he was sinful from the time his mother conceived him. That means he had no hope. He cries out, Lord, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, because I can't clean myself. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow because I can't get these stains out. I can't make myself clean. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide not your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Hide your face from my sin and block out all my iniquities. And here's the cry. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's the cry of the convert, and it's the cry of the Christian. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
we think we need a little help. But those who are dead don't need a little more information. They don't need a little bit more help. They don't need a little bit more effort to open the casket. What they need is new birth and new life. And it comes through Jesus Christ. So let us cry out for the Spirit to give life and to renew those who have it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the one who lived the life that we should have lived. You took the punishment. You died the death that we should have died so that we could have a life that we should not have. Lord, I confess to you that we come to you, we approach you thinking that we're pretty good. And we say, yeah, you know, I've, I've messed up. I've messed up in a lot of ways. And you say, wow, look at Jesus. Like, you've done a lot for me. And you give me a lot. But that's not true. If we didn't lose a little, we lost it all. We're not a little dead. We're totally dead. And you, Lord Jesus, came not to do a lot for us, but you came to do everything for us. Everything that we were unable to do and could not do, and by your grace that we do not have to do. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for sending Jesus who went to the cross for us in our place, who rose from the grave for us so that we would have new life and have it abundantly. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you work in your people so that your people cry out to you so that your spirit then gives life. And those who you give life, then you give renewal. And those who walk in your spirit, grow in your spirit. Lord, would you increase this cycle? Would you increase in us the work of your spirit? the experience of your spirit, the knowledge of your spirit, the purification of your spirit, that we may walk in you, walk with you by your spirit all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us continue to worship the Lord as we rise and sing to him claiming the promise that where we gather in his name, he'll be there in the midst of us.